Welcome to the May edition of the Flight Test Safety Podcast. I'm Art Tomasetti, your host. So if you suffered through showers in April, hopefully you've been rewarded with flowers this month. So let's start off with a look back in aviation history. And for that, we go to May of 1970 and the final public flight of the Dornier DO-31. The DO-31 was an experimental vertical takeoff and landing, or VTOL, jet-propelled transport designed and produced by West German aircraft manufacturer Dornier. The DO-31 was powered by two Rolls-Royce Pegasus vector thrust turbofans, one under each wing, and eight Rolls-Royce turbojets mounted on the wingtips, four in each pod. And these were used to help lift the aircraft off the ground and were shut off in conventional flight. The DO-31 also had an advanced, at least for that time, flight control system using a hybrid computer. It flew its first flight in February of 1967 and to this day remains the only VTOL-capable jet-powered transport to ever fly. But rather than me talk about it, let's go into the historical archives and listen to DO-31 pilot Drury Wood talk about his experiences. Drury Wood served as a Marine Corps fighter pilot during World War II in Korea. He happened to be an instructor at U.S. Naval Test Pilot School in the early 50s and worked with folks like Alan Shepard and even taught John Glenn. After retiring in 1964, he accepted a job with Dornier in Germany and was the only pilot to fly the DO-31. Um, there had never been a major aircraft program in Germany after World War II until uh, the German government decided to try to fulfill three VSTOL requirements because the war was going to be nuclear and somebody had to have some place to land and so the federal government responded with three proposals, one a fighter, one an attack airplane and one a transport. <coughs> the um, attack airplane got so far as a hover rig, and they're so ugly. I'm sure you've all seen pictures of those things. They look like flying jungle gyms. And the uh, fighter itself actually was built and flew sometime. Very sleek looking airplane with the uh, engines rotating on the tips. And it actually flew, did some pretty high Mach number, but crashed one day on takeoff because of a faulty gyro. And the pilot was severely injured. The program was canceled. Well, when I first went there, uh, the first flying object that we had was a jungle gym. It had four Rolls-Royce engines in it, and it was a cruciform uh, thing about as big as this stage. In fact, it was larger from side to side, and imagine that being the same length. And it was an interesting airplane. It had four Rolls-Royce engines in it, one on each tip and one in the middle, and a hot pipe that ducted air from these engines to the front and the back, and that was the pitch. The roll was uh, changing the thrust on the two outboard engines, and the yaw was actually moving the engines on pivots on the ends. There were not much instruments in it, uh, just uh, four temperature gauges. And the fuel gauge, of course, was pretty important because it only had five minutes of fuel in it. <laughs> so, so I. I flew that thing a couple of hundred times, and it was used to test the stabilizer for the next airplanes. Well, this took about a period of a year, and when we were in meetings about all of these things, everyone was talking about the airplanes, of course, and every now and then, they would stop talking in English for my benefit and switch to German. And so I kept hearing words that I thought I should understand. That's a bad sign. You know, <laughs> like Schleuder sits. Ejection seat? Dummkopf? <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So I went out and looked for a German professor. And I said, I'm going to catch up with this thing. I'm going to know everything that's said at these meetings, especially when they're talking about my body. So I took this German professor and I went there for a few weeks until he said to me, and I have to prove it to him, he says, Bitte, Herr Wood, kommen Sie bitte nicht mehr. I said, don't come back here anymore. I said, why is that then? He said, weil. He said, nie gehört jemand, das so furchtlich Deutsch spricht, mich so viel Vertrauen. He said, don't come back again. I have never heard anyone speak such bad German with so much confidence. <laughs> Well, the second test article looked like a bigger jungle gym. Okay, it's a, it's a huge airplane, and uh, it has looks like belly tanks on the tips. When there's four engines in each one of these things, and they supply the vertical thrust, of course. Well, this one that we were going to build that looked like the airplane, but it wouldn't go very fast, only had six engines in it. And... Um, we didn't have to test that very much. It had the stabilizer system. And I should tell you right now, and there are those of you who can appreciate this, that it only had a single axis stability system. One axis one in each configuration. I kept telling them this was not a good thing to do. That this had no commercial application. And <laughs> we had to go through it because that's all there was to it. Well, one day I was about to take off. Now, this has nothing to do with stability, and the three engines on each wingtip, there were six of them, three on each side. And they were all held together with a fairing, and all you could see was just these little holes down there, and there were jet engines about that tall and about that big around. They were plastic from the intake down to the burner section. And a bolt came out of the uh, first engine on the starboard side, that's right, the Air Force guys, and it, uh, <laughs> it came out, and it came out of the first engine, the second engine, the third engine, and destroyed them all just as I was lifting off. <laughs> this upset me. That's good <laughs> And so I began to worry about ejection seats, but I didn't need uh, no, another couple of seconds and it would have been inverted anyway. They could have just torched it and it would have been a complete funeral. So after that one then, we had a conventional airplane which uh, had uh, didn't have the lift engines in it, it was just to fly conventionally and there was a structural test thing, of course. And it was a kiddie car, a real kiddie car. We did have some things to settle, like helicopter pilots like to sit on the right side. So, but they decided this was going to be a transport, so the pilot would sit on the left-hand side. So I was one of the first guys to fly a transport that flew like a helicopter, but had a wheel. Now, that was interesting. Um, what also made it very helpful was that there were two throttles for the Bristol Pegasus engines which were underneath the wings and look about the same as a Harrier. In fact, it was as big as a Harrier and all the other engines were on one throttle so that you lit off everything at the one time. Actually, I had a great deal of confidence in this airplane, the program, the technology, everything else right up until the time I started the 10th engine. You know. <laughs> So the first takeoff we're going to make in transition, um, the Pegasus engines light off all of the other engines after we get up sufficient power. And the nozzles are supposed to go down like this. And so I put the nozzles down and it says, don't go any further than 68 degrees. I mean, or was it seven, something like that? Because if you put them all the way straight down, then all this hot air is going to come out the front and the back and we're going to have a big mess down here. So I put it down to what they told me and I 
push the power up, and we call that flight the reluctant dragon. It, <laughs> the hot air hit the ground, came back into Pegasus, the backfiring, fire coming out of the, the ducts, the endless, the side, everything. It was, and then it was awful. They tried, I mean, it was, it was actually bucking down the limit. You can see it, it's awesome. It was bad that the reporters were there. Okay, but we did, I flew that about 48 times, and now here comes the real airplane. And this real airplane was totally finished. I mean, it was ready to fly troops. Have you ever heard of an airplane that will fly backwards at 40 knots and forward at 0.7 Mach number? Beat that. <laughs> so, uh, one day uh, after we had gotten the, we were able to be in conventional flight and I had already hovered in this big hover rig and now we had to put the two things together. And so uh, I approached the airfield with my heart in my throat. What's it? Mouth. No, anyway. And I did everything just right, and we landed. And it worked like a charm. We got over 600 flights out of the program. Uh, we only had one incident, and that was when we had some NATO inspectors come from the transport section of NATO, the medium transport section. And they were, we were going to demonstrate to them the fact that this might be something that NATO would like to have. And so I came from a conventional flight, translated, and land on a 150-foot platform on the grass, which is smaller than this room. There was a problem. When I started coming down, and I hit the point where I felt like I should be able to pull the throttles, I kept on going. And the airplane laid very gently on its belly. <laughs> now, all of you pilots know they're gonna say, well, he didn't put the gear down, but I did. I had the project engineer sitting there, and I said, three green. He says, yeah, three green. And we had the cameras and everything else, so we finally pinned it on the landing gear manufacturer. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much, Drew. Great stuff. That recording comes from the 2003 Centennial Flight Oral History Sessions conducted by the Society of Experimental Test Pilots. Now, the past few weeks have been busy for yours truly, so apologize for this episode being a little delayed. But a lot of aviation-centric events for me have happened in the last few weeks. First was a reunion marking the 50th year anniversary of the Aviate B Harrier here in the U.S., where we actually had in attendance six of the first 10 Harrier pilots. It's great catching up with some old squadron mates and sharing stories from days gone by. You know, it's always interesting to me how much more exciting the flying stories get as time goes on. After that, it was off to Palm Beach, Florida for the North American Flight Test Safety Workshop. And for those who attended, thank you again for coming. We had over 150 in attendance, representing more than 40 organizations. And I think we covered several different angles of our theme, Can Organizational Culture Play a Factor in Flight Test Safety? A video cast for some of the presentations will be available on our website shortly, along with the resource materials that were used during the Day 1 tutorial. My thanks to all who helped make this a successful event. Finally, I was off to the West Coast for the annual Marine Corps Aviation Association Conference and Awards Banquet. Yeah, another opportunity to catch up with old friends and make new ones, celebrating the year in marine aviation. So that brings us to this podcast. And as I thought about the topics, I happened to be sitting in the airport watching a view screen that was showing a trailer for the upcoming Top Gun movie. As of recording time, its full release is in theaters is coming this weekend. And yes, of course, I'm planning on seeing it. 
Now, I won't be so dramatic as to say that the first Top Gun movie changed my life. I was a senior in college and kind of already on the path to becoming a naval aviator. While the movie didn't put me on a new life path, it did give all of us who were on that particular life path a nice little boost. In fact, that weekend after it came out, we had set up a volleyball net in the yard of the house we were renting near the campus, north of Chicago. And with our aviator sunglasses and our dog tags, of course, with those way too cool black silencers on them, we stripped off our shirts and played volleyball. Now, I should mention that for a Floridian like me, it was nowhere near shirts off weather, but we were trying to be the best of the best. So with that movie trailer fresh in my mind and having just come off the flight test safety workshop where I talked about how pop culture provides ideas for making us safer, I guess it was inevitable to settle on today's topic. And also, why not have a little fun with this podcast every now and then? So, our May 2022 topic is five things the Top Gun movie has taught me about safety. Now, to be clear, I'm pretty sure that none of the production team for the original movie ever intended it to be something you show for safety day. But let's see if there are some things we can take away from the movie. Number one, and we'll of course start at the beginning. The opening credits scene for Top Gun might be one of the most motivating scenes ever filmed. Well, at least as far as airplane movies go. Watching all that activity on the deck of the aircraft carrier, the first takeaway is pretty obvious. Safety is a team sport. All of those people work together, perform together, in order to safely operate in that risky environment. Number two, after their encounters with the MiG-28s, yes, I know, it's a movie, just go with it. Cougar is a little shaken up. And after barely making it back to the ship, with a little help from his wingman Maverick, he walks into his commanding officer's stateroom and turns in his wings. I'm holding on too tight. I've lost the edge. I'm sorry, sir. Our safety lesson here is the importance of knowing your own limitations. We are expected to know the limits of our aircraft, but every bit as important is knowing our own limits. Now, number three comes right after Maverick and Goose's first flight event at Top Gun. Oh, no joy. Why? Sir, I had Commander Heatherly in my sights. He saw me move in for the kill. He then proceeded below the heart deck. We weren't below 10,000 for more than a few seconds. I had the shot. There was no danger, so I took it. And maybe this is not something that needs to be said to flight test professionals. But Viper sums it up perfectly. You took it. And broke a major rule of engagement. Then you broke another one with that uh, circus stunt flyby. <sighs> Lieutenant Mitchell, top gun rules of engagement exist for your safety and for that of your team. Rules of engagement, regulations, standing operating procedures, etc. all exist to keep us safe. And most of them are born out of incidents and accidents. And like I said, this may not be something you need to tell flight test professionals, but if I'm being honest, I have stretched and maybe even broken the rules once or twice in my career. And just because things turned out okay, I don't know that that makes doing it okay. Number four. Now, no specific scene really for this one, but you see it several times in the movie, and that's the importance, the value, and the learning that comes from debriefing your flight events. Aircraft one performs a split S. That's the last thing you should do. The MiG's right on your tail. Freeze there, please. The MiG has you in his gun sight. What were you thinking at this 
While there may not be life-altering lessons from every flight, I'm convinced that there is always something to look at, to think about, to discuss, and to improve. Until we can fly like Iceman with no mistakes, we can always learn something. Maverick makes an aggressive vertical move here, comes over the top, and he defeats the bandit with a missile shot. The encounter was a victory, but I think that we've shown it as an example of what not to do. Next. Gutsiest move I ever saw. Finally, number five. After the crash and the loss of his Rio Goose, Maverick is hesitant and apprehensive about flying. He even drops out of the Top Gun course. Now, I know I mentioned in number two, knowing your limits, but the takeaway here is a little different. I think it is that when something bad, something unplanned, or even failure happens, we have to find a way to recover from that. A large part of that is taking the time to learn what went wrong, and then to figure out what to do about it. And as good as modeling and simulation are today, in flight tests, we will still encounter unknowns. We will still have incidents, and we are still subject to doing the things that humans do from time to time, making mistakes. And by the end of the movie, Maverick re-engages. He gets back in the saddle or whatever analogy you want to use. He even counters jet wash again, and this time he keeps control of the airplane. See how easy it was for him to learn from that first experience? Or at least it is in the movies. So there you have it, listeners. Five things the movie Top Gun taught me about safety. Think about those the next time you feel the need for speed. Well, maybe you have your own lessons from the movie. And if you do, share those with us. That'd be fun. And who knows, with the sequel coming out this weekend, maybe it will give us a few more. As we approach the summer, there are a number of events coming up in the next several months, so I encourage you to check the SCTP, SFTE, and AIAA websites for more information about registration and submitting abstracts. And that'll wrap us up for the month of May 2022. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast. As always, we welcome your feedback and your ideas on what you'd like to hear in an upcoming episode. And until we meet again, be safe, be smart, and be ready. Oh, and keep striving to be the best of the best because there are no points for second place. The Flight Test Safety Podcast is sponsored by Time to Climb Training and Consulting. Motivate your team to succeed, accelerate towards your goals, and elevate to a higher level of performance. On the web at www.time2climb.com.